we are uh, we are in week nine of this uh, series where we are going through this letter written by James, the younger brother of Jesus. We're going verse by verse through this, and uh, we're in week nine. There are thirteen weeks in this series, and we're in week nine. So uh, I uh, I hope that you're enjoying this as much as I am. I, uh, I heard about a little boy that had gone to church with his family, and then after church, the little boy looked really upset, and he was sort of crying, but he was fighting back the tears. And the dad ended up saying, what is wrong, son? What is wrong? Why are you so upset? And he said, well, the preacher said today that every child should, should be raised in a Christian home. And then he talked about what that looked like. It was a home where there was prayer and Bible study, and there was ministry that the family was involved in, and that it was a family that, that, that exemplified, he didn't use that word because that'd be too big of a word, but, but that showed general generosity and, and stuff like that. And he said, every child should be raised in a Christian home. And he said, but I want to stay with you and mom. <laughs> the word atheist describes a person that does not believe in the existence of God. And there's another phrase that is making its way through theological circles. And, and I keep hearing this phrase a lot. And it is the word practical atheist. A practical atheist. So an atheist is someone that denies the existence of God, but a practical atheist is someone who does believe in the existence of God. They believe in God, but their life doesn't show it. They believe in the existence of God. They may believe in Jesus. They may even accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but the way that they live their lives does not really look very different from the world that surrounds them. Let me ask you this question. If Satan is going to fall into one of those two categories, which would it be? Does Satan believe in the existence of God or does he not believe in the existence of God? Oh, he knows, doesn't he? They've met. So Satan is not an atheist. Satan would be, in this example, a practical atheist, someone that that denies and rebels and rejects the lordship of Jesus Christ and and the holiness of, of God and letting it have any effect on the way that you do life. So James every week is taking us through this series of tests or this series of self-exams. And and today we're asking ourselves this question, am I living within God's design? Am I living my life within God's plan for my life, within his purpose or not? And if I'm doing it, I'm sure that I'm not doing it perfectly, but am I making progress? And so you can write that in your notes. The application for this entire 13-week series is God's expectation for me is progress, not perfection. So today we're going to be looking at the uh, last portion from James chapter 4. Let's read together James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, It is sin for them. So the example that James gives, and he could have used a lot of different examples, but it's the example of a businessman. And this man is making some plans. He's planning to go somewhere. He's planning to to sell some things or to provide some service. He's planning to make a profit, and then he'll come back home at the end of that. Is there anything wrong with that business plan? Is there anything that, that uh, contradicts Scripture or, or things that commands of God within that business plan? 
Absolutely not. I mean, it's okay to have plans, right? It's okay to have a business plan. In fact, if you're a businessman, I highly recommend that you have a business plan. Is there anything wrong with families and and churches making plans? Is there anything wrong with the church having a budget and working with that budget or setting goals and, and having a plan to work towards those goals? These things, there's nothing wrong with. There's nothing wrong with what is said in that portion of the scripture. The problem is in what is not said. The problem is what is missing from this man's plans, the the man that James uses as an example. There is no mention of him seeking God's will through God's written word or through prayer or through seeking wise counsel from from godly people. The The only kind of plans that are mentioned are human plans. You know, I will pick the time that I will go. I'm going to leave today or tomorrow. I will pick the place that I will go. I'll go to this city or that city. I'll pick the time frame. I'm going to be there for a year and then I'm going to come home. You know, I'll pick the kind of business that I'm going to run. And all of these things are human plans that completely ignore the, the will of God and the purpose that God has for a person's life. James is writing to believers here. Remember, he's writing this letter to Christians that are being persecuted and scattered. And so he's writing this to Christians, and he's warning them of the foolishness of calling yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, but letting it have very little effect on the way that you live your life. I I heard this a while back, and then just this morning I was reminded of this, that uh, the letter of James, if you're going to preach and teach the letter of James, and you do it without the cross, that's just mean. It's just cruel. Because James beats us up every single week. And we have to remember and we have to let all of this point toward the fact that we see how flawed we are and then we point to the cross where we have this beautiful picture of God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness and and the freedom that comes from guilt and shame. And all of that is because of the cross. So, So I pray that as we go through this, that instead of feeling beat up, I pray that that we make little corrections in our course and and that we point to the cross and we say, wow, even though I messed this up in my life, and I'm going to try to do better, but even though I messed this up in my life, I look to the cross and I think about how much God loves me. So number one in your notes, the first thing that we learn from this passage, from this example that James gives us, is that we lack knowledge. We lack knowledge. In verse 14, he said, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. So there are basically two types of people, and and you can fall somewhere in between, but there are two extreme types of people. There's the people that plan everything, okay? Some of you are like that. You plan everything. You write it all out. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know what to expect. There are no surprises. Everything's planned out. And then there's the other people that just kind of go, wee, through life, and there's just not a lot of plans, right? There's... Basically, those two types of people. You're a planner or you're not a planner. But one thing that we all have in common, no matter where on that extreme scale we may fall, we don't know what tomorrow holds. James says you can plan all you want, but you don't know what tomorrow will hold. I actually think James is being pretty generous here because truth is you don't know what today holds, do you? You don't know what today holds. You know, we can have all kinds of plans you know, my plans for the day, if, if you said, hey, Frank, what are you doing later? Well, you know, after church, I'm going to hang around here and visit with you guys for a few minutes and just, you know, see what God does through this time that we spend together this morning. And, and then I'm going to run up to Publix. So I'm going to pick up some lunch. I'm going to come back here. And the worship team, and, and that includes the audio and the visual people, the people that have been working in this team for a long time, we're going to get together. We're going to eat lunch together, and, and we're going to 
pray together. We're going we're gonna to talk about some goals. We're going to talk about some plans. And then after that, you know, we're going to go home and, and uh, I'm going to spend some time probably on the couch with my family or, or out in the backyard or something. We're going to kind of hang out a little bit and, and there won't be any discipline problems. You know, my daughter will just be perfectly behaved and, and she'll just talk to me about how much she loves me and appreciates me as, as her dad. And, and she'll, she'll just be perfectly behaved with her mom and their relationship. Those are my plans. Now ask me tomorrow if my plans were fulfilled perfectly the way that I had in my mind. So James says, you lack knowledge. You don't even know what tomorrow holds, but that's being very generous because the truth is we don't even know what today will hold. I heard one man say that there's not a person in this room whose whole life wouldn't be or couldn't be changed with just the buzz of your cell phone in your pocket right now. And then you get that message. And our whole life is turned upside down. We don't know what the future holds. And it's unwise to live as though we are in control and ignoring the only one who is truly in control. So we lack knowledge. And then he goes on, number two, to say, we also lack power. Okay, we lack knowledge and we lack power. So continuing in verse four, he said, so what is your life? You're like a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Now, this word for mist is an interesting word in the Greek. It's, it's not a fog that may linger for hours and hours, you know. It's not like that at all. It's more like a vapor. It's a vapor that is there and then just immediately disappears. It's like your breath on a cold day. You just, you see it for a couple of seconds and then it's gone. And you know, God, we're reminded through all of this, when we think about how temporary we are and how eternal he is, we're reminded that there are a lot of things that are different about God and us. You know, God has never gotten in over his head in any situation. God doesn't pick up the newspaper in the morning, see what's going on in the Middle East and go, I didn't see that coming. Man, I feel like I've really gotten in over my head when, you know, I think about the foreign affairs of the world. No, God's never gotten in over his head. God has never been snuck up on. God has never been surprised by anything. And yet here we are. We don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And yet here is God who knows everything. And sometimes we don't trust him with our future and with our plans and with the decisions that we make. I want you to imagine that uh, you've got 10 pennies. And so you take these pennies and you get a Sharpie or something that'll actually write on a penny. I don't know about a Sharpie, but you write on it and you number them one through 10. And then you put the 10 pennies in your pocket and then you kind of jump up and down and you shake it around and you mix them all up. And then what you do is you stand up in front of the room full of people and then you, here's your plan. What you're going to do is you're going to reach into your pocket and you're going to pull out one penny and it's going to be number one. And then you're going to put it back in. And then you're going to reach in again. You're going to pull out number two. And then you're going to put it back in. So there's always 10 pennies in your pocket. You're going to pull one out, and you're going to pull them out in numerical order. Okay, you get the picture? So here's the deal. If you reach into your pocket and you pull out number one, that is a one in 10 chance. Okay, that's, that's, not, that's not rocket science. You guys can figure that out. If you pull out number one, and then you put it back in your pocket, and then you pull out number two in the correct order, that is one in 100 chance. And then if you put that back, and you actually pull out the third one in order, that is one in 1,000. And then the fourth one in order would be one in 10,000. And if you go through the succession in numerical order of all of them, David, check my math on this, but if you do it all in order, it is one chance in 10 billion. It's kind of crazy, right? It's a little bit mind-blowing, right? And I want to tell you today that there are billions and billions of possibilities about what can happen in your life just today. 
Do I turn here? Do I go straight? Do I stop at the grocery store? Do I go straight home? Am I going to talk to this person? Do I make that phone call? And then all of the people that are around you that could be on a certain traffic you know, routes that could run a red light. I mean, all of these things affect your life and can absolutely turn your life upside down. And there are billions and billions of possibilities every single day. And we, most of them, most of them are completely out of our control. Don't be so filled with arrogance that you ignore the one who sees it all, who is in control of it all. James says, you lack knowledge. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And you lack power to do anything about it. James is basically saying, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but James is basically saying you're ignorant and you're temporary, okay? So he's not really writing, you know, how to win friends and influence people. He's not really writing a little self-help book here to give everybody a big hug. Instead, you know, he's writing a self-examination to show me, am I living a life that shows that I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Or am I to use that phrase that we talked about, am I living the life of a practical atheist, someone that confesses or professes faith in Jesus Christ, but it just really has a little effect on the way that I live my life. You know, he's not trying to build self-esteem with these people. That's not what they needed. What they needed was reality. So you lack knowledge, you lack power to do anything about it. Number three, this is great news. God, even though you don't know everything and even though you don't have all power, God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere and God is good. You can go to your little Google machine and you can type in characteristics of God and you can start to read all the things that the Bible teaches us about God. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just a drop in the bucket, but God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere and God is good. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. God is all-knowing. And his knowledge, this phrase about being unsearchable, it means that it's, it, we can't even comprehend the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God may seem like foolishness to man. God is all-knowing. Genesis 1-1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I always figured if you can get that verse, then pretty much everything that follows that verse in the Bible is a little easier, isn't it? God is all-powerful. As, as Louis Giglio keeps saying in those videos that we've watched on Wednesday nights, he is the star breather. He spoke the world into existence and he breathed out the stars. This is the God that we're talking about. This is the God all-knowing and all-powerful. Psalm 139, verse 8 says, If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. The psalmist is saying, God, everywhere I turn, everywhere I could, could possibly go, if I could go to the furthest corner of the universe, you would be there and your power would be there. God's presence and his power reach every corner of this world, every corner of my life and beyond. God's presence is everywhere. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 through 3 say, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And God's goodness can be seen in the way that he provides for us, the way that a mother would provide for a newborn baby. God cares and he provides for us, and he wants us to grow and to mature. He wants us to make progress in our life. And so he provides for us. And ultimately, his provision is seen, his provision for eternity is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
and how arrogant we must be to ignore God's knowledge and to ignore God's power and to ignore God's presence and to ignore God's goodness. So we're talking about humility and arrogance here. That's the contrast in this portion of Scripture. And, but these, these concepts are sometimes hard to, to kind of get a handle on. They're, they're, a little bit, you know, they're a little bit hard to talk about. For example, I'll ask you this question. Can you know that you're humble? I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Can you strive for humility and then one day go, got it, made it, did that, what's next? You know, I heard years ago, I heard a, a Christian comedian saying that he won an award for being the most humble. It was a pen. It was a humble pen, and he was the most humble person in his class. And so he won that award. He put it on, and so they took it away from him. He was really proud of his award, of being the most humble person in his class. And so, if you know, what do we do with this concept of humility? If I came up to you and said, hey, you know, how's your walk with Jesus? What, what's God doing in your life? And, and your answer was, I believe that God's been doing a work in man, and I believe that God has led me to this deep, profound humility in my life. It, can you recognize it and then, and then talk about it? I mean, can you, can you know that you're humble? It's, it's weird. It's, it's slippery. And in our pursuit of humility, we have to be careful that we're not just trying to be seen by others as humble so that they may exalt us in our humility. So this concept of of humility and this concept of arrogance is slippery. It's hard to get a hold of. I mean, what do you do with this truth? You know, can you know that you're humble? I don't know. But what do you do with this? Most arrogant, prideful blowhards, most of them, they don't think they're arrogant or prideful. They just, they just think they're really awesome, right? Most arrogant and prideful people don't know that they're arrogant and prideful. They just think they're really good at what they do. And so how do we navigate this complex issue of humility versus pride or arrogance in our lives? Number four in your notes is that we must pursue humility. We must pursue it. And we're not going to do that perfectly. But we can show some progress along the way. And when we fail to, to show humility in our lives... There's remorse for that, okay? There's remorse. So here are some bullet points that you can write in your notes about pursuing humility. Understand and acknowledge both strengths and weaknesses, okay? It's important to do a little evaluation of your life and, and, and determine what are the strengths and weaknesses. And, and there are actually um, there are some really good tools to help you do that. If you're trying to say, you yeah, know, I really want to get plugged in at church and I really want to serve in, in the ministry, but I don't really know what I'm cut out to do, you know. There are tools where we can kind of take you through a process and help you, you know, figure out that your personality and your experiences and, and all these things, God has shaped you for a certain thing. So, so that's cool and it's okay, but, but you need to evaluate your strengths and your weaknesses because not everybody is good at everything and that's really, really okay. God didn't mean for everybody to be good at the same things. We all have strengths and we all need weaknesses. And one thing that this means is that we all need help. In some area, we're not the expert. We all need help. It's not a bad thing. In fact, that reality should set you free. You don't have to be the expert in everything. You don't have to be good at everything. So the next bullet point is that we belong to each other. We belong to each other. We all come together to make up the body of Jesus Christ, and he is the head. That's one of the things that, that, that 
is important about officially placing church membership with a, a local body of believers. It's like, okay, I, I, I've been attending, I've been coming for a while, but now I want to be plugged in and I want you to know that I belong to you and you belong to me and we can count on each other and we can work together and that's really important. And so we come together to belong to each other and to make up the body of Jesus Christ, which he is the head and he leads us in the way that he would like for us to go. And when the body is missing a body part, all of a sudden it's not as effective as it once was or is not as effective as it could be. And so if you're attending here and you haven't officially become a member, God may have your giftedness in mind for this body. And so there may be ministry or something that is, that is not happening in this body of believers because you haven't yet plugged in and started to use your gifts here. It's kind of like a... a a one-legged field goal kicker, okay? You're not going to be as effective as maybe you could have been. Although after last week, the Pittsburgh Steelers might be willing to talk to a one-legged field goal kicker. I don't know if you've been following that. But it's, it's kind of like that, that sort of concept. You're not as effective as you could be. You're not as effective as God intends for you to be. And so he means for all of us to, to evaluate our strengths and weaknesses and then to come together to belong to each other to make one body. The next bullet point is to reject arrogance in both directions. I got to tell you what this means, okay? But reject arrogance in both directions. There are two extremes of arrogance. There is the, the side of arrogance that says, I'm the expert, I can handle it. What do you need done? I'll do it. Whatever it is, I'll be in charge. I'll make all the decisions. I'll do it. I can handle it. What do you need? And if you're really quick to do that, you may be struggling with arrogance in your life because you are not the expert in every area. Okay, and you need to bring a a, a team of people around you to help make the best decisions. But on the flip side, on the other extreme, if you feel like you're so lacking talent that God could never use you, if you think that you have nothing to offer, well, you feel so lame that you're disqualified or you're excused from God using you in a powerful way, well, I'm not going to try to convince you that you're not lame because you may be. That may be an accurate assessment. That may be true. But I do want you to marvel in this truth. God is glorified by profoundly using lame people in the most powerful ways. Think about it. All of the examples that we have from Scripture. Who in the Bible, if this church were going through the interview process right now for different positions, how many people from the Bible would would we hire? How many people would would be qualified? Okay, Um, we're looking for a senior minister. The Apostle Paul sends in his resume. We're looking at it. We're saying, okay, so Mr. Paul, I'm so glad to talk to you today. Uh, Do you still struggle with murder? Because I saw that you you were really hateful during this season of your life and you killed hundreds of people. And and he says, no. We say, okay, great. I tell you what, because it's in your past, I'm not so sure that you're qualified to be the senior minister. So we'll put you in the nursery and let you work with kids, right? Okay. Oh, okay, I see here that we're hiring a worship pastor, King David. I understand that you're a professional musician. You play a pretty mean harp, and you write a lot of your own music. That's pretty exciting. Um, but, but So do you still sleep around? Do you still struggle with lust in your life? And he says, well, you know, sometimes I do. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, you know, you're not going to be our next worship leader. Thanks for, thanks for coming in, though. Um, okay, Abraham, I understand that you pimped out your wife on a couple of occasions. 
you guys got to read the story because I'm not going into all that right now. But I understand that you pimped out your wife, probably put a little strain on your marriage. I can understand. Uh, you may not be the best elder candidate for this church. Uh, Noah, do you still drink too much? I understand you got drunk, passed out naked one time. Is that true? Uh, do you still drink too much? Okay, well, you know, I understand that you built this big ark and that was really cool. And, but, but you know what? You're not going to be the person to lead our next building campaign and, and our building project here, okay? If, if, if we look at all the people from Scripture and we, and we think about their qualifications, and we think about their messiness, in the past, would they be qualified? The Bible is filled with injured and broken and messy people. And what is so beautiful is that God enters into that and he makes much of his name. And so if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm not arrogant on that extreme, but I just don't think I really have a lot to offer. Think about the examples of Scripture, and it wasn't because they were so great that great things were done. It was because they, in in the midst of their flaws and their messiness, they submitted to God. They submitted to Jesus Christ and to His Lordship, and so God used them to do amazing things. So arrogance is the person that thinks that they're just all that in a bag of chips, and arrogance is also the person that thinks that they are so weak that God can never use them. And when you feel like that, that is an accusation against God. God, you're just not smart enough or powerful enough or good enough to use me because of my lack of ability. That's foolishness and that's arrogance. So we want to be aware of our weaknesses and our strengths We want to be aware of God's willingness to use us in spite of our weaknesses and our strengths. And then the next bullet point is, I just pray that you will take time to marvel at the majesty of God. Marvel at the majesty of God. This scripture I don't think is in your outline, but you can write it down. Psalm 8.3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have in place, when I consider these things, the word consider means that I marvel, that I just look at them and I am in awe. And then he goes on to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I that you would notice me, that you would care for me, that you would want to use me for anything great? Who am I? We look at the greatness of creation and we recognize that that the heavens declare the glory of God, but we recognize that you declare the glory of God. As big as the universe is and as as bigger as our heavenly father is, he chooses to be glorified through people like you and me, flawed people like you and me. The next bullet point is that we celebrate the gifts of others. Celebrate the gifts of others. Don't be jealous when somebody gets up and they do something that maybe you, you wish that you could do or you always wanted to do, but celebrate those gifts that they have and then seek for God to reveal to you where your giftedness is and where you have an opportunity. But spot and encourage the strengths of others. You know, this is how our church works. We have elders and we have staff and we have deacons and we have ministry team leaders and we have lots of volunteers and they all come together to make great things happen. Nobody here is wearing a cape, okay? There's no superhero in this church that is just good at everything, that can handle every situation, that's just in charge of everything. There's no one here that can try to do all of this on their own. In verse 15, James says, instead of making all these plans and ignoring God in your plans, what you ought to say is, if it is the Lord's will, then we will live and we will do this or that. Now, this 
if it's the Lord's will, those are not magic words, okay? It's not like, well, I can make my plans and kind of leave God out of the planning process, but then at the end of it, tag on these magic words. Well, if it's the Lord's will, and then you're honoring God with that. That's not what this means, okay? I, my dad, and I love my dad, and he didn't. this is not bad. He's going to listen to this online. Dad, this is a good thing, okay? I mean, it is a good thing. My dad used to always say, probably still says, Lord will and then creek don't rise. You ever heard that before? Lord willing, the cre- hey, we'll see you Sunday. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. And, and that's really cool. And, and James is saying you should say that. It's not a command that if you add these magic words to the end of your plans that you're going to honor God with your plans. But instead, it is an attitude of the way that we live our lives. So it's fine to say things like that, but it is even more important to let that, let that seep down into your, you know, deep into your heart and deep into your soul and let it be your attitude for living recognize God and seek his will and trust in his goodness. The next bullet point is that we we need to make plans in the context of faith and obedience. We need to make plans in the context of faith and obedience. James goes on to say something that is really interesting here at the end of this passage. In verse 17, he says, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is what? It's sin for them. If you know the good that you ought to do and you don't do it, it is sin for them. Now, that's really interesting to me because we usually think of sins as as things that you commit, right? Not things that you omit, but things that you commit. We usually think of sins as, you know, the big list of don't do this and don't do that. Don't drink, cuss, chew, or go out with girls that do. It's all of these things that you've got to avoid. But here James is saying, yeah, all of those things are great. All those things are important. Pay attention to all those things. But then he goes on to say, it's not, sin isn't just not doing the bad stuff. Sin is neglecting to do the good stuff. And if you know the good that you ought to do, and you don't do it, that's sin. Now, is he saying that it's sin to make plans? He's not saying that at all. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, all throughout Proverbs, planning and preparation is a virtue. Wisdom of planning and executing a plan. These are all things that God talks about. These are all good things. Planning is not sinful. Planning is not wrong. It doesn't mean that you don't have faith in God for the future. It doesn't mean that at all. James' point is this. Human plans and even our own existence in this world is somewhat insignificant in that we will quickly disappear. We don't have any control over tomorrow. We don't have any control over the rest of today. We ought to take thought for larger matters. Matters having to do with faith and submission to the, to the word of God and to the will of God. Our future plans, which are right and which are good, should be informed by, should be driven by, should be fueled by greater realities that are bigger than us. Our faith is integrated into everything that we do, everything that we consider, all of our plans. So the next bullet point comes from that verse 17. It's do what you know is right and good. Do what you know is right. Do what you know is good. And this goes way beyond not doing the bad stuff. Most of us think that's enough. Well, I just won't do the bad stuff. This goes beyond the level of knowing what is right and good, but doing it and Knowing those things and not doing them is sin. So this message is pretty simple. This message is is pretty practical. And so I want to give you a practical challenge here as we look at our next step. Uh, But let me ask you this. I think about 
this passage is all about living within the will of God, seeking God's will for your life. So I'll just, I'll just throw it out there. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Do you want to know? Raise your hands so that I know that I'm talking to the right people because I'm only going to talk to the people that are raising their hands. So do you want to know God's will for your life? Okay. I'm going to give it to you. Are you ready? And this isn't in your outline, so you can listen to it online and make some notes, or you can come up later and I can give this to you. But if you go to your Google machine and you type in God's will in Scripture, all of these verses will start coming up that says, and the Scripture actually says, this is God's will for your life. So that's pretty cool, right? You want to know God's will for your life? God's will is revealed in God's word. And here are just some examples. I'm not going to read them all. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So God's will for your life is that you have a hope and that you have a future. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. God's will for your life is that you be saved, that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that you enter into a saving relationship with him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God wants us to live a life of gratitude and thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. It is God's will that we live a holy life, that we avoid immorality in our lives. And we can go on and on and on with all of these kinds of examples. I'll leave it right here if anybody wants to see it, but you can, you can get a lot more from that. And so God's will for your life is revealed in God's word. And most of us, when we say, I want to know what God's will for my life is, most of us mean this. I want to know if I should accept that promotion. Or I want to know if we should move over here. Or I want to know if we should change churches because of that thing that that other church has got going on. Or I want to know if I should date that person. Or I want to know if I should... Those are the things that we usually mean when we say we want to know God's will for our lives, right? Those are the things that we think about. And those are all good things. Those are important things. And you should continue to pray and to seek God's wisdom for those things. But I think that... I think that if we will focus on the things that we absolutely know is God's will for our lives, the things that he reveals in his word, I think that the other things will kind of take care of themselves a lot of times. Followers of of Christ live within God's will as he has revealed it. And we're constantly seeking his will and we're involving him in our plans. Plans are not bad. Plans are good. You should plan. Make plans that involve God in your plans. And so here's the next step. I'm going to challenge you, and this is just like really, really practical stuff. Make a list of your current plans. In fact, if you want to fill in both of those blanks, they're both plans, okay? The first one is make a list of your plans. And I gave you some examples here, okay? You may have plans for your education. You may have plans for future training in your career. You may have a business plan because you're thinking about launching out and doing something. You may, you may have other plans for your career and your advancement. You ha- may have plans for a vacation that's coming up. You may have plans for your retirement. All of these things are good, and you should be making these plans. But I want to encourage you, don't ignore the creator of the universe, the one that can reach into his pocket and pull out all ten pennies in order. Don't ignore him because he understands all of the possible ramifications of any potential circumstance that you may choose regarding any plans that you could ever make. That was a really long run on sentence. God's in control, and God knows Involve him 
and your plans. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Just go home and make a list of all the plans that you can think of. Okay, well, we got this vacation coming up. We got a vacation coming up. Let's do that. Well, my daughter's being homeschooled. You know, so let's think about, well, what are our, what are our plans for that? Well, you know, we, we, we're getting older every day. We've got to start thinking about retirement. We've got to start making some plans for that. We've got some plans for the church. We got, we've got all these plans. Let's start thinking about all of these plans. And then the second part of the next step is this. Write a statement for each describing how you will glorify God through your plans. Involve God in your planning process And then think about how you may be able to glorify God with those plans, whatever that plan is. Can I I go on a vacation and glorify God with that? I think so. Can I choose a career or, or go into launching some new business and glorify God through that? Absolutely, but not if we're going to ignore him throughout the planning process. So here's an example, okay, and it's another run-on sentence, but this is just an example. I didn't want to just give you those two statements and then kind of leave it right here. But here's an example, okay? If, if I'm going to be planning for my retirement, then I need to be praying and fasting and seeking God and, and reading his word about what he says about, about finances and what he says. By the way, retirement is a new concept. That isn't in the Bible. Retirement is not necessarily in the Bible. Planning for the future is in the Bible, okay? And so I need to involve God, but those are things that I should be wrestling with and thinking about and studying scripture about. I need to seek wise counsel. I need to do all these things. I need to be, be, be thinking about how we're going to provide for our later years, and I will seek God through his written word and through prayer and through wise counsel, not only for how to invest our finances for the future, not only that, that, but not only that, but also in my retirement, how can I invest my life? How can I spend that retirement to be a blessing to the next generation of Christ's followers by encouraging them and by mentoring them and looking for opportunities to, to just speak into their lives? through the experiences that I've had in my life. That's just one example of a plan and how I might seek to glorify God, involve God in the planning, and then glorify God through the execution of that plan. So here's the memory verse, because I feel like you know what to do, right? You know what to do. You know what God's will is for your life, some of the specific things, and We know that we need to pursue humility and we need to avoid arrogance. And when we fall into that trap, we need to be remorseful. We need to repent of that. We know all of these good things to do. And so James 4.17 is the memory verse. If anyone then knows the good that they have to do, and we do, we know a lot of it. And if we don't do it, then it's sin for us. And so when we sin, let's repent of that. And what you will find is that you will find James points us to the Savior. He points us to the cross. He doesn't just beat us up and then walk away from us, but he loves us and he points us to the one who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. So will you, will you pray with me? Our Father, we do love you and thank you for all of the love that you've given us. And Lord, when we are so tempted to, to leave you out of our plans... I pray that we would just be reminded of this moment and we would just take time to, to seek you. And, and Lord, when we go through this planning process and, and, uh, and then maybe you reveal some other things, help us to be open to you that might change some plans. Lord, you, you know the future. You know what tomorrow holds. And we, we love you and trust you enough to place our lives and our futures in your hands. So be with us, Lord. And, and when we when we boast or when we're tempted to boast, 
may we boast in you and not in us. May we be reminded of our flaws and our mistakes, but not to the point that we feel useless in your hands, but to the point that we recognize just how great the cross is. Thank you so much for your love for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.